Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 120 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and here watching my back at all times is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. So, Patch, we're here to discuss one of our most anticipated films of this year, the newest entry in Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible series. This film is the first to serve as a direct sequel story-wise to the one before it, and also the first to feature a returning director. I know that we're both huge fans of Christopher McQuarrie's direction in Rogue Nation, and we couldn't have been happier that he was coming back. But with all this hype, expectations were, naturally, very, very high. Did it deliver? Your mission, listeners, should you choose to accept it, is to stick around while we discuss the first five films in the Mission Impossible series, and then we'll transition and talk quite a bit about Fallout. So Patrick, my friend... I haven't had a chance to talk to you much the last week. You've been traveling, but I know you've been watching Mission Impossible. So we've kind of been like in synergy doing the same thing, even if not being able to connect as much. So how did it go for you? Well, my mission was a success. I was able to actually watch um, what I intended, three, four, and five. I skipped the first two because I'm familiar with the first one. We all know about the second one. There's always a bad egg in every successful franchise. So I decided to skip that one. And what I enjoyed most was feeling like three, four, and five were really prequels leading up to this one. And I, and I loved getting a chance to reacquaint myself with Ethan and his team, his relationship with, um, with, is it Julia? His wife? Yes. And seeing these phenomenal directors coming in, uh, starting with J.J. Abrams' feature film debut, that was really surprising to me. Um, and, and seeing how they took this franchise and really made it into what I have personally enjoyed about it. What the first one gave us, three, four, and five have slowly just amped that up more and more. They've given us not just more of the same, but better. And familiarity and originality kind of coupled together to make what I think is probably one of the, you know, with, it rivals for me, the Fast and the Furious in terms of getting better with each entry, in my opinion. And with modern day action series, right? I mean, I would agree. I'm more a fan of the Mission Impossible and Fast and Furious series than I am the the new Bond, uh, personally. That doesn't mean that I haven't enjoyed those films but not on the same level as these two series. Um, I rewatched all of them back in January, I think it was. And then prior to seeing Fallout last week, I went ahead and pre-watched again, three, four, and five like you did. And you're absolutely right. I mean, they serve as a direct lead-in. I mean, all of them have pieces of events that are absolutely critical to the story and the way that things go in fallout. And I, I thought that was strength fallout, obviously, but I I think that that is also a strength of those films because one thing that is interesting is with different directors all the way up through rogue nation, you got different styles of films. And so for me, Oh, never mind. I'm not going to tell you which one is my favorite. We're going to do that later, but I'll say this John Woo's style 
gives Mission Impossible 2 a very unique flavor. It's unlike anything else we've we've seen. Not just the film itself, but like the way that Ethan Hawke looks. There's a great video. I highly recommend listeners that you check this out. Patrick Willems, he was a guest on our show for our Quiet Place episode earlier in 2018. Great guy, fantastic thoughts, has a YouTube channel. Go watch his two Mission Impossible videos. There's one about the series, and that's the one about 20 minutes long that I highly recommend the most. But then there's also the second video about Ethan and Ethan's progression from movie one through movie five and kind of how it mirrors Tom Cruise's career. It's brilliant. It really is brilliant. And I couldn't believe how accurate it was when he started talking about, you know, at Mission Impossible 2, Tom Cruise is the wild guy, the wild child who can, you know, just wants to do crazy stuff. And then in Mission Impossible 3, He's actually married at that point. And so, of course, his movie now is going to be about him getting married and kind of settling down. And it's a really fantastic video. So I highly recommend those. They increased my watching of the series again, Patrick. Did you watch the video before? I did. I watched the 20 minute one. I haven't had a chance to watch the one on Ethan specifically, but it was the that video specifically got me even more hyped about Fallout. And really, I watched it prior to rewatching three, four, and five. So it was something to look forward to. And I got a chance to kind of pick out the things that he had pointed out in his review, his essay, whatever you want to call it, as I was watching each individual one. And um, of course, there's a lot of running. And of course, there's a lot of MacGuffins. And it's it's great because he was essentially saying everything that I said after my initial viewing of Rogue Nation, which is what makes the franchise great is having just enough familiarity to bring your audience in and then changing it up enough with either hyped up action set pieces, with new characters, with great dialogue, all these things that are refreshing. And it's not like a rehash of what you're talking about. And he would even go on to say, Patrick would even go on to say, the plot really doesn't matter. And there's some truth of that. (laughs) It's a good thing (laughs) because the writers clearly didn't, didn't feel like it mattered. (laughs) And, and and to me, it's the interesting thing about Mission Impossible is it's a mechanism to tell me a greater story about friendship and about teamwork. And I would probably venture to guess that's the same opinion I have about Fast and the Furious. It is. Because these things are borderline unbelievable, these, these plot lines and things like that. So you've kind of thrown that out the window. And that's okay. Because with some of the tech that's being used, you're like, no way, that doesn't exist. Or it doesn't exist yet. But it's still cool to look at. And so you get this great balance of saying, here we go. This is fun to watch, but there's enough drama. There's enough cool stuff in there that I can latch on to a character. I can latch on to a particular uh, piece of the story that leaves me going, man, I want to watch that again for this reason. I mean, it's not something that I'm going to necessarily have a cerebral reaction to, but I don't need to because it knows what it is. It's unapologetic and it succeeds for the most part. So first five movies, any favorite scenes, favorite action moments? Oh, man. Um, Not all of them because there's tons, okay. but like, give well, me like one or two. This, this may tip my hand a little bit, but I, I remember texting you that Rogue Nation was like five for five in terms of awesome scenes. The fun thing that, was you were texting me as it went. So it was, wow, Rogue Nation is two for two with great action scenes. And then you went three for three. It's now four for four. Okay, it's now five for five. And then I said something about a scene 
I won't reveal which one. And you were like, I'm not there yet. And I was like, holy crap. Like, yeah. yeah. So, so for the most part, I think that when you have a series of consecutive scenes in a movie that are doing different things and at the same time pushing the story along, you're doing something pretty successful. You're getting a chance to just keep me intrigued at different points because you're doing something different each time. They're not just serviceable. They are entertaining in and of themselves. And I think that speaks to the franchise as a whole in comparison to the individual movies. I could pop in MI3 right now and enjoy it independently. I could pop in Rogue Nation right now and watch it independently. In fact, my wife and I, after seeing Fallout, I said, you're going to want to watch Rogue Nation. And so we were attempting to queue up Rogue Nation and our streaming service went kaput. So we ended up watching Man from Uncle, which is just as good. You know, it's an equally fun spy movie because we were in that kind of mood. But it speaks to the individuality of each movie. You don't necessarily have to watch these movies in any particular order, but watching them in the order that they are makes them that much better. So the independence of each movie is equally as valuable as the cohesion of all of them. Absolutely. Henry Cavill connection also. Yes. Also. And that's, I have no problem admitting that that was the connection that I had saying, Hey, you know what? Rogue Nation is not working. Let's do Let's do man from uncle. But okay. But still commit. Give me, give me two favorite action scenes in the series, the whole series. Okay. So I'm going to give my first cliche and I'm going to say from MI1, the whole sequence inside the computer vault. I thought that was something straight up out of like, you know, futuristic 2001, a space odyssey meets, you know, spy movie because of just everything that was lit. And I think the second one is probably that opening sequence with Ethan jumping on a plane, trying to get into the, the side door. Benji's like opening up the cargo door. This is from rogue nation. Just the insanity of it. And knowing that Tom Cruise is doing this. This is not digitized stuff. This is Tom Cruise grabbing onto a big C-17 or whatever it is and going, I got this. Um, that was enough to get me pumping. A good third like honorable mention is the the heist moment inside the big water tank in Rogue Nation. Good. Well, I'm going to mention different ones. So my, I love that first one. I think is so, I think it's iconic. That's the thing is some of the other ones that I love are great and I remember them, but the mission impossible break in of the computer vault from the ceiling where he is can't touch the ground and you got to worry about the, the drop of single drop of sweat. Like that is a moment that people who haven't seen the movie know because of pop culture references, that's when you know you have become something truly transcendent as a piece of uh, media of any kind. So that one is for sure there. But my other two that I would mention is, the opera scene in Rogue Nation, I absolutely love everything about how it plays out. It's the first time we get to meet Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, she's amazing. It's just, it's so good. Everything in it, the choreography, the way that the whole uh, scene plays out, and then the humor that comes into it later when they're running away and she's in heels and she takes them off and all this good stuff. Um, and then the other one that I really love that sticks out to me in the whole series, this time was cemented, and it was the bridge scene in Mission Impossible 3. My gosh, I forgot oh, it was yeah. I forgot it was coming, Patrick, and they're driving along and Philip Seymour Hoffman comes up in the helicopter and then they just start like just shooting missiles at the bridge and blowing it up and I mean it it bordered on completely unrealistic at that point because it was more like a war movie, but mm-hmm. the way it was shot, Abrams, I mean it was it was just really really good. Um and I thought it fit 
him because he's to me the best villain, Philip Seymour Hoffman in the whole Agreed. series uh, by far, actually. Um, just yeah. phenomenal. Uh, gosh, what a loss. But um, he, he just sells it, you know, in that moment, his, his villainy makes that action even better or worse yeah. in a way, you know? And so th- that would be mine. And then, yeah, he was the other part I was just going to note about the whole s- series was, you know, what a fantastic villain he was. Uh, there's a moment where he is being interrogated after being captured by Ethan Hunt. And it's probably my favorite moment in that movie, if not maybe the entire series, honestly. And he just completely level tells him, I'm going to find your family and I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to murder them. I'm going to make them hurt. I'm going to make them feel pain. It's all because of you. Like, you know, and like, it's just this mo he is so maniacal uh, to the point where he's chilling. He is just bone chillingly scary. Um, and I love him. He's great in that. And I think he's the highlight of, of MI3. Um, and you mentioned that bridge scene. I remember the trailers for that movie in that specific moment where the explosion happens right behind Ethan and he gets like sideswiped into a car based on by, by the explosion. And I remember the bridge scene happening and going, Oh, this is the, this is when that happens. Right. And so I was kind of gearing up for it when it happened. I was like, yeah, I love it. So yeah, it's a, it's a great scene for sure. Totally reminds me of uh, true lies also. I, by the for way. sure. For sure. <laughs> I got it. I got to feel like Abrams was channeling that on purpose, knowing Abrams and the way that he does things. I, I would not doubt it for one second, but and no lens flare either. Very little lens flare. I think in this, in the, in MI3, I didn't notice a lot of it. No, but you know what? There was lens flare in. There's lens flare in MI6 Fallout. There's definitely some lens flare. So, uh, That's for sure, yeah. yeah, let's uh, let's do some announcements real quick, and then we will roll into our main review. Uh, listeners, we are embarking on a very fun and interactive month of August. Instead of doing a director month like we've done traditionally in the past with Nolan and Kubrick's filmographies, we are doing a director battle. We have created a 64 movie bracket and we are working towards four picks that we will cover each week of August. So one each week, one of the final four participants for full details on this, please go check out the very brief episode that we dropped. It says announcement, August director battle month. Listen to that. It tells you what to do, but essentially come to our Facebook group, join it and you can be part of the voting process. You can find out when the voting happens by listening to that episode. We have finished up the first of the final four participants it was a lot of fun. I loved seeing the reactions to these votes and you know, some of them were landslides. Some of them were very close and evoked some strong emotions from uh, listeners and members in the Facebook group. And we are happy to announce that the first film that we will be covering next week in this process is going to be Ridley Scott's Gladiator, which we're both very happy about not that we essentially would have, we would have been fine with any of the movies, but uh, we both are big fans. We'll tip our hand a little bit and we're going to enjoy the heck out of talking about that movie. I think uh, you might even get some nice little background Hans Zimmer music. You might. If you're lucky, you will be entertained. You know, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we don't get any thumbs downs from, oh, man. Uh, from <laughs> don't, need that. don't need that. So listeners, please. Yeah. Check out the Facebook group, check out that episode and then come be a part of, picking the next three of the director battle month. 
Also, we want to always promote some of our partners and friends that podcast as well, doing great work and bringing awesome conversations about movies to you. So please check out the Next Best Picture podcast. This is run by Matt Neglia. He has a whole host of a crew that works with him in providing great content all throughout the week. And he is our go-to guy for awards situations and kind of pre gaming and and figuring out what you think is going to be in the Oscar conversation throughout the year. So check him out and hear this from him. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the filmmaking industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Alrighty, well, it's time to get into it. And as we always do, we're going to give you our spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Mission Impossible Fallout, then you're behind the curve. uh, And uh, I don't know what's your problem, but you need to get to the theater and you need to see this movie. For reals, it's a great film and it is well worth seeing in the theater. Uh, This is an action movie that we don't get a lot like very often. And uh, you need to support it with your dollar if you possibly can, obviously within your budgets. But please do go see the film and then come back and listen to us. If you've already seen it, then you're safe. But we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie. It has plenty of twists and turns and things that you don't want to be spoiled about. So that's why we say this up front. All right, Patrick, it's one more takeaway time. And since I've been talking, I'm just going to keep talking. And I'm going to lead us into our one word takeaway. And also because I'm kind of proud of my one-word takeaway, okay? (laughs) I mean, that's like the bottom line here. So mine for Mission Impossible Fallout is fusion. And no, no, that's not intentionally a nuclear device joke, but, you know, if the bomb fits, then it works. Don't shake your head at me. You liked that joke. The thing I love most about Fallout, honestly, is the way that Christopher McQuarrie has combined many of the best things about the franchise's first five films, like we were talking about just a little bit ago. This is one incredible movie experience. It has the personal emotion of Ethan trying to protect Julia, kind of call back to MI3. It's got the biggest stakes we've ever seen, uh, basically on a global scale. It's got a wonderful depiction of team dynamics, Many of the films have great team dynamics, but this, to me, shows how it's more than just a working relationship for them. Obviously, the way that this film opens, it's very clear. There are multiple homages to previous entries and set pieces and just actual scenarios that happened in other films kind of being called back to here. And obviously, as has been talked about to death in the hype machine, this has some of the best practical action and stunt work that not only this series, but Hollywood has ever seen. So it's the blending of all of these elements together into one 
really fun movie that made it so great for me. And so fusion, that's my word. Yeah. And it's difficult to do that when you have so many moving pieces uh, in terms of acting and writing and set pieces and all this stuff to bring something together that works. I think in our conversation on the Incredibles two, one of the things that we had discussed either online or offline was about the fact that there was so much going on, but that Brad Bird made it work. It all felt like it fit. Fast forward a week or two later to Fallen Kingdom, that same thing existed, but to the detriment of the movie. And I think we're back to where we were with The Incredibles 2, where we have a whole lot of stuff going on, and it all seems to work together, maybe with the exception of some things here and there. But the thing that I pulled away from it, and the one word that that I could sum up my movie experience was frantic. And from the very beginning, we are thrown right into Ethan's world. We've got this kind of weird fantasy thing that's going on, and then he's waking up, and he's writing the mission. We kind of get what the plot is going to be. Um, not very, you know, not very complex. You know, it's a bomb that's going to destroy the going to destroy the world. You know, same old, same old Ethan stuff. You know, and this is all before the credits even hit us. And let me just say this: I love the fact that most of these movies. I need to go back and kind of watch the intro to all of them, but they all call back to the original TV series and showing you little plot points in the, in the actual opening credits, but not enough to necessarily make you go, Oh, so that's, what's going to happen. They were just, they're completely kind of random here and there. And I always love watching them and putting a mental kind of check mark in my head going, okay, I can't wait to see that. That's going to be a lot of fun, but I didn't feel like I could catch my breath there was so much going on and it seemed like everyone was a suspect. Things weren't what they seemed. And I wasn't really sure how things were going to turn out, which was good because I like being kind of the idiot in the theater of going, Oh, I didn't see that coming. And I'm going to say that I use frantic in both a positive and slightly negative sense. Um, and I'm excited to get into the conversation where we can kind of flesh that out. But frantic's probably the best way I can describe my fallout experience. That's very good, and I would pretty much wholeheartedly agree with you. So, yeah, let's talk about why. First, the film is being hailed by many as the best action film of the decade. There's a great thread going on right now, actually, in the Feel and Film Facebook group. And we've had this conversation before, but there's many more members this time around than there were the first time we talked about it. And the conversation is around the word masterpiece. Um, one of our contributors, Don Shanahan, from Every Movie Has a Lesson – is a strong, strong voice against the use of the word masterpiece for pretty much anything 20 years or more recent. Um, he likes to keep that word reserved for when directors are done with their work. And he, he just really likes to protect the sanctity of the word masterpiece or even the word great that we as critics and as film fans throw it around way too flippantly declaring things a masterpiece like before we've even seen it a second time. And this is very reminiscent of what has been taking place with this film, Mission Impossible Fallout, over the first couple of weeks of uh, first reactions. People have been calling it the best film, action film of the decade. They've been calling it the best action film of the century. They've said that it is, you know, the first thing that's ever beaten Mad Max Fury Road from a few years ago, yada, yada, yada. So, my question for you first is, what do you think? And specifically, how did you feel about it compared to 
something like Mad Max Fury Road, which is like the gold standard of our decade. And then I know I'm giving you a lot of questions here and I'm going to answer them all too, but I also want to know what your favorite set piece was uh, action wise in this one. You know, I think it's two things. One, I think it's difficult to put the word masterpiece on anything that is based in an action oriented genre. I mean, you could, in, I guess it's in its own subcategory of action movies. You could throw that word around. But when I think of masterpiece, it's it's like you're, when you think of the word masterpiece, you think of Oscar contender. And to me, the only time you're going to see am I anything in Oscar categories is in technical stuff. You're never going to see it for best actor. You're never going to see it for best picture. If it's nominated, you're going to know that it's really just more of a head nod, like, hey, it's just a thrill to be nominated, but you know, we're not going to get it. I walked away from Fallout going, yeah, that was pretty great, but I'm not going to call it the best. I'm not going to call it my favorite. I I think what it had was a lot of stuff. And I think the bigness of it, the spectacle of it, and the way that the spectacle was in a lot of ways very tightly choreographed, tightly filmed, tightly told, I think that's what's probably giving it that sense of wowness, that wow factor. But it's right they're on par with some of the Fast and the Furious movies. I mean, it's just big action, big fun action with some heart here and there. And I don't necessarily see it exceeding the expectations of something even like Fast Five or other movies that in that franchise that we've, we've loved. Mad Max, I think, is kind of living in its own world, literally and figuratively when it comes to a movie like that, because it's doing something that's very different in terms of its genre. I mean... Mission Impossible is somewhat of a realistic technology and crazy plot notwithstanding, but we can tangibly relate to that. We we don't we see Mad Max as something more like a fantasy thing, and so I think it kind of elevates the action because of the world that it's living in. Whereas Mission Impossible, Fast and the Furious, uh, even Bond to an extent, you're still living in some of that you still still got that groundedness to it. And for me, I didn't walk away feeling like this was incredible in some ways i felt kind of disappointed because of some things i i wanted to happen but didn't so favorite action piece in this one it's probably going to be the sequence where they are trying to think breaking out solomon lane i thought the abruptness of it was really kind of cool especially when it followed the whole mental sequence that ethan hunt goes through of like i don't want to kill people (laughs) him just ramming Solomon Lane into the water and then seeing how all that played up played out. I thought it was pretty fantastic in that, that the whole motorcycle car, everything and the humor in it was really fantastic. Yeah, definitely good. I I mean, I agree. And I think I'm not getting into the, the masterpiece conversation right now. And what I believe there's, like I said, there's almost 200 comments right now and a thread going on in our Facebook group, people with millions of not millions, obviously, but like, lots of different perspectives to explore. So I would encourage people to check that out. Um, But for me, I I do think that there is something to be said about not proclaiming things, masterpieces when we've seen them one time. Maybe it's a personal. Uh, I've just recently this week really tried to find a way to check my own self because I know that I'm an emotional person. I mean, that's what we talk about on this podcast is how we review movies based on our emotions where we are acknowledging that we're emotional creatures and that that's how we respond. And I 
get wrapped up in these this hype. I have my entire life. It's not something I can fight against. I don't have that 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 type of willpower. And so I have to do something for checks and balances. But I know for me, I, when I see a movie a second time, it's drastically different. It can be drastically, drastically. I mean, my thoughts on a film three days after seeing it can be drastically different because I might have forgotten all about it. Uh, and I can get swept away by the initial viewing mixed with a lot of hype. And I think it's important to let longevity have its say, I guess, overall. So in that regard, I would say Don is correct. I don't know what the number is, what the right length of time is, but I think movies need time before we can call them the best of whatever we want to proclaim. Um, And, you know, when it comes to this one, I, I really enjoyed most of the action. I didn't have a problem so much with the franticness of the action itself because even though I didn't feel like I could hold my catch a breath, I, I was engaged and entertained. What sets this apart is that it is practical and it is real stunt work. When you know that going in, it just makes things feel so much more serious than something like Fast and the Furious, where you see hundreds of cars flipping down the street you know, at one time you know that there's some CGI and some crazy, you know, effects that are involved in that. And it's not actual humans, but when you see Tom Cruise, like jumping onto a helicopter and free climbing his way up a rope, then, you know, it's actually Tom Cruise doing that. There is a significant level of investment. That so I think increases. So I think the the word that you might be looking for is respect. And when it comes to practical effects, I have that same utmost respect. It's one of the reasons that I enjoyed The Amazing Spider-Man because of some of the practical effects and stunt work that were done in it, even if the, and it elevated the story, it elevated the characters because you felt like people were really doing those things instead of a cheap way of saying, let's just make spectacle for spectacle's sake. No, there were real things put in. There was real influence put in. There was real time put into creating these things. And Part of me appreciates that and makes can make an argument that, yes, it should amp up your appreciation and your value for a movie's greatness. But at the same time, you got to take it for what it is. I mean, I can create, at least I hope I can, create a movie that might be all CG, but the story is incredibly compelling. Does that make it any better or worse? And this is a different argument for a different day, but I, I'm sort of torn at the idea of, giving credit to a movie based on the fact that it's not doing something else. Like mission impossible fallout to me is equal to fast and furious because of the spectacle, because Mm -hmm. it does practical effects over special effects. doesn't really bother me. It doesn't really change my or sway me in terms of saying, well, that's a better movie because it's practically done as opposed to especially done. It doesn't make it any less enjoyable for sure. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, it is what it is, and it's what I see in front of me. And not, I'm not thinking about, oh, Ethan really did run, and he really did jump, and he really did do that thing. So my respect is there, but maybe my appreciation for it as being better or worse than something else isn't. Interesting. It, you know, it's definitely higher for me. I mean, I I see, and I'm only talking about the action here. I'm saying, you know, specifically the action. So when I see him jump out of a helicopter in the Halo sequence, which is probably my favorite sequence of the film – as far as the action goes, I mean, that's what it opens with. It's incredible. Halo jumps. Awesome. And I see that and I know it's him. 
and he's flying around out there, it just makes it more real for me than if I know it's CGI, if it's a movie that has that, or if it's stunt work. Um, now, should it or not, you're, you're right. There's a great question to be had, and I wouldn't say that I'm right or you're, and you're wrong or that you're right and I'm wrong. It's just a difference of opinion. But I, I feel like right. what is happening here is that a large majority of people are in the camp that I am and they are definitely having more enjoyment because of this. And that's why they've gone to such lengths to give, to do specials that highlight the fact that Tom Cruise is doing all of this stunt work prior to the movie. It's almost like extra sets of trailers where they're putting out this promotional material. Now I want to talk a little bit later about does that work against the film? (laughs) But for me, when it comes to comparing this to something like Mad Max, which seems to be the gold standard of recent years, I agree with you. It, it's not there for me, and it, it is largely part of the genre question because I've seen things like Mission Impossible 6 action in multiple films. I haven't seen things like the crazy stuff we see in Mad Max because it's a different world. And so it it is completely unique, and that highlights it and makes it kind of more interesting to me it makes it stand out more to me one of the problems i have with the action in this film is the helicopter sequence and a couple things one the fact that we see so much of it in the trailer the fact that we've gotten those stunt work promos where they show all of this pre i don't know what to call it but they show the actual footage of Tom Cruise like working on these stunts. So we know these big action pieces are coming. I couldn't stop thinking, Patrick, about how much more I would have enjoyed this film if I wasn't wondering and waiting. So the moment they get to Kashmir and it shows it across the screen and I see that, which is gorgeous, by the way, it's Norway. I don't know if you knew that, but that's in Norway. And I'm like, oh, okay. And and what I'm doing is, in my mind, I'm wondering when we're going to get to that cool helicopter part. If that had come in a movie that I'd watched in the 80s and I'd never seen a trailer for, I would have been blown away by, oh my gosh, is he really going to do this? But I already knew what he was going to do. I already knew he was going to take the helicopter up. I already knew that Henry Cavill was going to shoot at him. So my entire watching of that scene is, is first of all, hindered. Um, and, and it, it's not fair to the movie and, and it's their own fault <laughs> in a way, but like I would have enjoyed it more had I not known it was coming. The other problem I have with that scene is the ending of it because for all of the stunt work and the practical effects we get from Tom Cruise, it grounds the movie for me, like I said, and it makes me feel like it's more lived in and more just on the ground level, realistic and, when they change the tone at the halfway point of this helicopter sequence, it goes from really crazy and kind of on the edge of believability, but like wow factor to now you're just another movie with helicopter like cockpits rolling toward each other and not exploding and perfectly stopping at the edge of a cliff and things are, everything becomes lucky. You know, we stop the bomb in the split second of time and you're hanging from a cliff and it has to be, you have to catch it before it falls. And there's, there's like all of these perfect things that have to happen. And it just 
I'm not going to complain about whether or not that is okay in a film. But what I'm going to complain about is that you give me half of your sequence, including your whole movie, that is set up in a way that lets agency of the characters have such a big role in what happens to then the last 10 minutes. It's it's completely unbelievable. And, and it really took it down a notch for me. Yeah. The, when I talk about pre watching this, when I, when I talk to people about going to see it, I, I try to find the teaser and not the full trailer for it. Like I want to say, this is what I'm about to experience because the teaser does just that. It gives you just enough to feel like, Oh man, I'm excited about this. And there's, Two interesting things that happened here. Some things I thought were going to happen didn't, and some things that I didn't think were going to happen did, particularly the way certain lines of dialogue were spliced together. So you have the secretary who says, you took a risk in Berlin and now the world is at risk. Immediately, I'm thinking, oh, great. Now you've got the IMF secretary is pissed off at Ethan and that's going to be a plot device when in actuality, the line that comes after that is pretty fantastic because it sets up what I think is a central theme of the movie. And the first time that I really think the franchise plays with that theme of friendship and being accountable to individuals as opposed to an entire nation at the same time, one of my biggest disappointments was that bathroom sequence. And I'm going, I'm ready for Henry Cavill to just bust a cap on somebody. I'm ready for him to just go crazy. And he gets his butt whipped. Like he gets his butt handed to him. And you get the you get the fist pump thing, the the cocking of his arms. And that's really it. And it felt very much like a letdown. Like I was like, this is going to be crazy. Now, I thought he was fighting Ethan from the trailer, and that would have been pretty fantastic. I get the deception. I get, oh, cool. But at the same time, I think people were like, we're ready for a Superman, Ethan Hunt throwdown. This is what we're ready for. We're ready to see that happen. At least I was, and maybe I'm representing an audience of one here. But to me, I think I think Walker as a character was kind of a disappointment to me. I felt like he went from being very intriguing to very flat on the back half of the movie. And that helicopter sequence, I think, is what made him the flattest. Because then he became a mustache-twirling villain. Just... Hell bent he went, on. He went from just, Superman to Two Face. <laughs> well, and it's not really literally. About that. Like I don't, and I don't mind that. I, I think I think it's great when you have a guy who, and and this is what I like about him and the Man from Uncle because he's a likable character, but he's also a womanizer. He's that secret. He's a bond. He's Bond is what he is, and he his his charisma I think is what makes him great. Whereas in this, I was ready for him to be a bad guy because the trailer basically gave it away, but. I felt like he was pretty flat. I felt like he didn't have much of an arc when it came to his reveal. And it it left me not hating him. It left me kind of going, okay, well, he's probably going to get killed at some point because he's taken down, he's taken on Ethan Hunt. And Solomon Lane became more intriguing, which that was a criticism I had in Rogue Nation was that I didn't care for the villain there. Solomon Lane's character got elevated maybe as a result of Walker's kind of decrement or whatever. But I, I felt like I got a little bit cheated because you have such a big name star in Henry Cavill and what he did was fine, but it was just that. So I, I wasn't really, I didn't like it. Yeah. I uh, had a, a big issue with his character as a whole. And 
it's too bad. I, you know, I've heard him criticized uh, in other rounds of people's reviews and such for being too stoic, not enough emotion, not enough charisma. I don't think that was what this character was about. So I'm not not hung up on that at all. I think that he played the character to the dialogue and the script and the way it was supposed to be played. And of course, he did fantastic at that because he's Henry Cavill. I didn't like the what it asked him to do in the end, like you said. And for me, the reveal on his character was another criticism that I had because not only did I know it was coming from the trailer, but what is worse, what is egregious to me is that to, I felt that it was incredibly telegraphed within the film. I never for one moment questioned who this guy, that this guy was going to turn. I know I didn't know he was going to be Lark right away. I guessed it pretty quick and pretty soon, but they really make it obvious if you know what I mean. And I, and I felt like tonally there was a little bit off there because we get the cell phone scene where they show the cell phone that's not broken instead of the one that is broken. He's giving it to uh Sloan, Erica Sloan. And so we know then, okay, no, he's, he's cheating the system. Like he's lying. So then we're, we're convinced we know that he's like a double agent of some sort. But what bugged me is that the, tone of the film's story kept trying to make me think that he wasn't so like you show me that he is a double agent but then you're trying to make me kind of you're trying to still keep it a mystery at least that's how i felt and it just it, it was really awkward for me throughout with his character didn't didn't really work but what about the rest of the characters so there there are a lot of people in play there's a lot going on you say it's pretty simple as far as bare bones plot, stop the plutonium from being into nuclear bombs and blowing up the earth. But within that, there's a lot going on. There's Solomon Lane having to be rescued or broken out, not rescued. Uh, there's his team and you know what's going to happen with them. And then there's this white widow character thrown into the mix to be a middleman, middle woman, a broker of a deal. All this stuff is going on. So how did you feel about all of the plot in this one comparatively to the rest? And did you think it was too much or did you think it was just right? Any other characters stand out? I don't think any characters stood out because of the sheer amount of characters that existed. There, there were too many twists and turns for me. And I get the, the reason why I get that McCoy and company want to keep us guessing who's, who's good, who's bad. But at some point you get, completely lost when everybody's a double agent, when everybody's working for somebody else, you've really lost a sense of the black and whiteness that needs to be a foundation. You have to have that black and white in order to go gray, but you basically started with this multitude of shades of gray, not 50 of them, just a few, but you have this sense of all these people that could be good, could be bad. And it's almost annoying at times because then you have to keep all that stuff in your head because you have to remember, Oh wait, did she say this? Was that okay? She said that, but she didn't mean that because she was actually talking to so and so about this. Had you cut out maybe because it's a sequel, keep Solomon Lane as your main guy. You know, bring in Walker, um, bring in Ilsa, give her some more screen time because man, she needs it. <laughs> She's awesome. And I felt like the people that really added value to Rogue Nation and why it made it such a great movie for me felt kind of sideswiped because you're introducing even more characters to get from 
point A to point B and you don't need that. It's a spy movie. I get it. But at some point, too much is distracting. I am with you 100%. I wanted more Ilsa. I wanted her storyline to be more serious, more emotional, more part of the team from the very beginning. I didn't want her to be another conflict, just yet another conflict for Ethan to deal with in this film. I wanted her to be part of the team. I actually wanted Jeremy Renner back. I missed Brant. My hope going forward, honestly, is that maybe Brant becomes a CIA director because that would be really cool. Don't make it Angela Bassett. Not that I disliked Angela Bassett, but like then we're just doing the same exact thing, making the CIA director, the IMF director that we did with, you know, Baldwin and Hunley's character. So, I mean, let's let's bring him back and make him the CIA director or the IMF director as a young guy, as almost like an Ethan Hunt's peer. That would be absolutely fascinating dynamic. Yeah. And, and I loved him in that role. So I missed him. But, yeah, I missed Ilsa being part of the team. I wanted to see her in it from the beginning. Um, and so that was a little bit of a bummer. And Lane, dude, Sean Harris, I, I've never seen this guy before Rogue Nation, to my knowledge. At least nothing I reckon remembered him in. He's fantastic. And the nuance that he brings in this movie is amazing. And it's so few scenes, so few scenes, uh, but yet he knocks them out of the park. I think one of my favorite moments of the whole movie is when they're driving and his uh, head cover has been off and (laughs) they get up to, to Ilsa and she's chasing him and she shoots at them. And he's like, is that Ilsa? And and he's like, and she's trying to kill you? And he's like, interesting. <laughs> and you can just see on his face, he's like, well, this is, things have like certainly changed since I've been away, you know? And like, he's processing in that super villain way that he's super, you know, he can figure it all out. And that's what he's doing. He is definitely more fleshed out in this. And I love his character more in Fallout than I did in Rogue Nation because he was that, he was that, mustache twirling villain in in rogue nation and he feels human he feels like he has purpose he feels like he has a bigger global agenda that's not being informed by exposition you know we don't have to know about the syndicate to know what his real motives are i mean that manifesto is is one of those things but he feels genuinely evil i won't put him up there with philip seymour hoffman i think there's a level that he gets that nobody else can touch in this franchise, but he comes pretty close. He's a great second. Yeah, I would agree. And you know, if he was the only thing going in the film as a villain, he might be able to have that same gravitas and pull that off. But like you said, there's just so much happening and you know, I loved Benji and um, crap. What's his name? Duncan. And Duncan, Duncan uh, Ving Rhames. I love their characters in this one. I like the fact that Benji, you know, things pay off. Benji gets to wear a mask. Yeah. Those homages we were talking about. I loved that, uh, that opening. Well, this is also a criticism, but I liked the opening scene where they fake the hospital room, which is exactly the opening of mission impossible one. Yep. Um, and th- these things happen frequently throughout, but with that scene, another thing that had occurred to me where it took me out of the movie a little bit emotionally is along with the opening dream sequence, where Ethan wakes up and he thought that the world was being nuked uh, during a time he was with Julia and, you know, Sean Harris's character, uh, Salman Lane's like voiceover talking to him in his nightmares. 
there's that sequence where you mentioned it during the breakout scene and before it plays out, we see it play out and we think it's actually happening and Ethan gets up to the point where he has to murder someone and then it stops and we realize it's fake. There were a lot of these fake out scenes, a lot of them. And it culminated in Benji wearing the mask to dupe Agent Walker. So there's this whole lead up and this very well might have been like the best scene in the movie to me, but it it just, it got ruined because Benji says like, you want me to put the mask on at this point. So, so we, we get the payoff. Benji's been wanting to wear a mask forever. Now he gets the opportunity to wear a mask, but Ethan's telling him you got to wear a mask and be Solomon Lane and you got to go meet John Lark. So you're going to get killed and uh, you could very well get killed. And they all acknowledge this. And so it brings the level of danger up, right? The stakes are raised. But then we get the awesome reveal that Benji has faked it and it's Benji that stays behind and so not Solomon Lane, yada, yada. But what this did for me, buddy, is it retroactively ruins that emotional moment that Benji is having about the fact that he's going off to be dead. Now, it makes Benji as a character a very good actor because he pulls it off. But I was as a viewer connecting to the fact that Benji was putting his life on the line. And in reality, Benji's not doing that in the same way. Does that make sense to you of why that kind of bugged me? Absolutely. And I think that what we get, this comes from watching the films, watching the movies. I think independent of that, if you were watching fallout for the first time without any previous knowledge of this team oriented camaraderie, this family, I don't think it would have been as big of a bother because it plays itself really nicely as a, Haha, ha, gotcha, which is totally correct for this movie. I, I personally enjoyed that opening sequence about halfway through <laughs> that scene when the, um, you know, when, when Ethan gets mad, and he's about to, you know, take down the guy. I'm like, oh, wait, this, this start. Yeah, I think this is, yep, that's what it is. It's turning into that. Yep, it's for Mission Impossible 1. And it was great. It's great to feel like you're part of that IMF reveal. You're part of the team there. And, and it's nice when you hear, Walker say, yep, it's the IMF, just a bunch, you know, it's Halloween at the IMF, just a bunch of guys wearing. And then in the theater, I remember hearing somebody go, yep. <laughs> somebody literally goes, yep. And, and there was a laugh. And so it's played really well for humor. But at the same time, you're exactly right. For most of the movie, and maybe for previous films, I can't remember, Benji is, he's, he's wanting to be in the field. And he wants to be a part of this and be part of the action. But I feel like the things in the movie are really kind of playing down that earnestness of him wanting to be taken. I think it's really about him taking being taken seriously. He doesn't just want to be the guy behind the computer. He doesn't want to be the guy in the van. And in that opening exchange, he's like scared to death. And, and Duncan says, or Luther, is it Luther? Luther, like Duncan. Luther, yes, I Luther. I don't know why Luther. he said, yeah. Sorry. Luther says, you're the one who said you wanted to be in the field. And he's like, I want to be in the van now. And so it's funny. So it's consistent. But at the same time, we know that Benji wants to be in the field. He wants to be a part of this. And when that's not paid off, it is a little disappointing because we want it for him and it kind of cheapens it. Yeah. The other one is, you mentioned it. The other one is the cool Mission Impossible redo scene in the hospital. And what it did for me is it lessened the impact of Ethan Hunt going after the guy 
And Luther holding him back and saying, that's not who we are, Ethan. And he says, well, maybe that is who we should be, which is a very powerful moment. Like in the entire series, Ethan Hunt is about ready to throw his ideals out the window because he needs to stop these nuclear bombs from going off. Like this is a big deal. Like the world is in chaos. People are millions of people have died. Millions more could die. Like everything is on the line. And then it's like, everybody was acting. And I'm like, no, like there goes that incredible character development point of him having to make that decision. He's not really having to make that decision, you know, because he's faking it. It's all a ploy. And so, yeah, it just, it was, it was so close. And I mean, I still enjoy it. That's the thing. It, it speaks to the craft, right. Of McQuarrie and the team and everything. Like I love this film despite these things that I would consider flaws that keep it from being great. But let me say this. I think that, and we don't, we try not to compare movies, but I got a similar feeling, but more, I was more respective. I felt I've got more respect in the mission impossible fallout experience than compared to something like Thor Ragnarok, where everything was played for humor. There are moments in this movie and again, I feel like this entry is really calling attention, direct attention to the importance of family, the importance of being a part of a team that wasn't directly talked about. But from the very beginning, when you see, so if, if those scenes threw you out, I think one moment that would, that would really connect me is the moment during that exchange at the very beginning where Benji's scared to death and Ethan looks at him and says, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And it's repeated several times in the movie. And McCory's saying, this is real. Ethan's not just trying to be funny. He's not just trying to rest assure his teammates. He's like, no, you're important, Benji. Both of you guys are important. My whole team is important. And I think that it could have been reinforced better by not having those kind of aha gotcha moments but I don't think it was lost. And I feel like there's some of the heart that's threaded through most of the movie that I liked a lot was the fact that I wasn't beaten over the head with the fact that Ethan cared deeply about his team, but it was said enough to remind me that in the midst of all this action, there's a guy who cares about the people that he's working with. Well, that leads into something. I wanted to talk about a few of the themes in this and really it's just kind of some, some really strong quotes that are made and you're talking about one now. At the end of the film, after Ethan has saved the day, of course, um, we we get the Erica Sloan apology, essentially. And she tells him, she says, we need people who care about the one life as much as the millions. That way, I don't have to. I found that fascinating. I love that line. I wondered what you made of that. Because this is, like you said, one of the most defining characteristics of Ethan Hunt is that he will choose one life over millions. It's the reason they get put in some of these situations is because he is unable to make that call to sacrifice someone that he cares about or anyone really in general. So how did you feel about that being the way that it wraps up in her comment? Well, I think it's, it ties into what she does when she compares Ethan to Walker and she's talking to um she's talking to Unley and she says you use a scalpel i use a hammer, hammer. i love and, that line and it's a great line um but i think it's paralleled in the idea that 
when it comes to Ethan and his team, they're very meticulous and they're thinking about everything. Um, it was a little bit heavy handed. I think the moment where they're about to escape with Solomon Lane and there's that, that female cop and he's trying to be very sincere and he's saying, please just let us go. Let us go. And he ends up popping those four guys. And I kind of laughed at myself. I was like, okay, he has no problem taking care of a cop, a good person, but he has equally no problem just, you know, killing off four individuals. So it's not necessarily a moral compass that he has about humanity, just about bad guys. But I think that there's something to be said about the fact that he is thinking about the meticulousness of who he's around and his surroundings. I think that the way in which he is directed uh, by these multiple, multiple directors is showing how much the world around him matters. Whereas you look at Walker and Walker is completely unapologetic. He's like, look, I'll do what it takes. If I have to kill some people, I'll kill some people. And I wish that was more fleshed out. I, like, I wish we had more of showing some of his backstory in some capacity to show the, the weight of what he is as the hammer. And so for her, when Erica Sloan says that, I think what she's saying is, look, I need people that can do both. You're taking care of the small type stuff. You're taking care of the individual, but I've got people that are going to just do the massive, like taking care of it. Yeah. It's interesting because Walker is a lot like Ilsa. I mean, they're both the hammer. They're both, you know, Ilsa, Ilsa has the desire to be more like Mm -hmm. the scalpel. And I think we see her slowing, slowly transitioning into that. But she starts off really like Walker. It's it's point A to point B, and if you're in the way, she tells Ethan, she even tells Ethan, she's like, "Don't make me go through you, right?" Like she's going to get what she needs done, and if there's collateral damage, there's collateral damage. Walker is the other extreme, so she's kind of like in between, making that transition. Um, and I agree with you. I think, in a sense, the government in this case has to have both, because there is a time when it's going to be required. And this is the great ethical debate, right? Do you save, do you let millions die because you wanted to save your one friend? Like what is the cost of a single life? What is the decision to be made there? And then yeah. it's a great debate. And it's, it's awesome that the film makes us think about that. But Erica Sloan also represents the drones in our military world. I mean, she, anytime we see her, when there's a conflict, she's on a cell phone. She's she's far enough away that she doesn't have to feel responsible or feel emotionally accountable to what's happening. Yeah. She has Walker to do that for. She has, I mean, look at all those guys that came in to take down the IMF team. Whereas you have Hunley, who's right there with Ethan. And again, he's right there. He's tangible. And I think that to me, that's a visual representation of how these two organizations uh, work, where you have personal touch, you have personal connection team versus i'm just gonna send people and whatever happens happens so good man that's a great point i love that i love talking about that in general the idea of fighting our battles from too far away i bring that up a lot and i like how you're mixing that in here um there's a couple other the quotes that i want to talk about thematically one is the hope is not a strategy line that walker uses on ethan is it in your opinion um he says that hunt's results Speak for them. Walker tells Hunt that it's not a strategy, but do Ethan's results speak for themselves? Or, like is also said, is he just lucky? Uh, it's it's kind of a devastatingly evil thing, right? But I mean, he might be good 
he might be bad. It, I don't know. I just it it was a great chemistry moment as well in the film as a line, but it made me think a little bit more. I think um, I, I think I would agree that hope's not a, st- a strategy, but I think it's a res- I think it's a motive. Like I don't see hope as being something that the IMF team are at the forefront or maybe even the back of their minds thinking about how can we make this better? I think they're trying to complete their mission, but I think that how they handle themselves in these situations, uh, particularly going back to that sequence where Ethan's thinking about what would happen if he had to kill all of these innocent people, these cops, I think that speaks to how he processes. So I think hope lives in that. I think the idea of making the world better lives in that, but I don't think it's a strategy. I don't think it's what drives him to solve the mission. I think what drives him to solve the mission is get the plutonium, (laughs) defuse the bomb and do whatever means necessary. But I don't think hope is necessarily at the forefront of his mind or the IMF teams doing that. Yeah. I find it interesting because in a way I think that it is, there are a lot of scenarios where they have to hope things go the way that they planned in order for the result to be the one that they are seeking. And in that sense, it is kind of a strategy at times. Um, or maybe we could word it as it's a lack of a strategy. You know, it's, it's what, it's what remains when there is no strategy or when the strategy doesn't right. fulfill. Uh, it's what there is. Yeah. It's, it's what you're it's left with is hope. But I, I like that it brought this up and it made them question the different styles uh, in the way that Walker and Ethan process, because Walker is, there is no hope to Walker. It's either it's black or white. It is, or it isn't. And we're not going to trust and have faith in anything other than ourselves. Um, And Ethan believes in the team and believes in exterior circumstances more so than him. The other one that I want to hit on real quick is the manifesto written by Lark slash Walker. We learn And it drives the apostles and Solomon Lane throughout the film. And that is the greater the suffering, the greater the peace. So do you think the villains had a point? (laughs) That's the bare bones question. Oh man. I don't know what to think about that quote because it could feel so like, yes, that's really great. And at the same time, I could feel like that's just really cheesy. Um, I, I look at that. And I think it's how it's delivered that I'm still on the fence about as a, as a line, as an ideal, I think it has weight to it. I think that there's some truth to that, but when you've preceded it with the syndicate and what I think the actions of the syndicate maybe reinforce that ideal more so than I think that manifesto drives people to do something of what they're going to do. I I didn't like it. I don't, I think that the line itself doesn't work for me because I don't think the actions that take place afterwards or during, or as a result of line up completely with it. So it didn't, it didn't, it didn't woo me. It didn't sway me as being like, that's a great line. Um, To answer your question. Sure. I think the, anytime you have some kind of ideal and you're trying to, push out your vision to a person or a world, then yeah, you're going to be able to justify it. I mean, it's very much a Dostoevsky kind of thing. Whereas if you feel like you're extraordinary, then you're extraordinary because nobody can change your opinion. And I think that this, this line kind of omits that. 
So what I found interesting is that I fully bought and believed that Solomon Lane was engaged in this line of thinking. He truly committed as a zealot to this idea that the greater the suffering, the greater the peace. He was willing to die at ground level with the nuclear bombs because this is what was going to change the world. He believed in his cause and was willing to give his life for it. Walker, I never believed that. And that's what's interesting is because Walker's the man who wrote this, essentially. He's the one who came up with it in the in the movie's script, right? Like, that's what they tell us. So either it's bad writing or it doesn't work out very well, or he really wrote it, but to him it's just words. It's just a way to get people riled up. He, I really don't feel like he ever believes it. You know what I mean? Like his actions don't necessarily believe it. If they did, he wouldn't be the one necessarily flying off with the detonator. I don't think. I think he would be sending someone off. I mean, he would be more committed to this happening. I just never get that. There's no question for him. There's no like pausing Mm -hmm. to think about the fact that, you know, I'm leaving and you're staying. He just stoically leaves. And so I had a hard time buying his like extremism. Well, Walker as a character always from beginning to end feels like a goon. He doesn't feel like he has weight. He doesn't feel like he has this strategic. He's not the puppet master. Yeah, He's not. He's not. And he doesn't come across that way. If, if I had found out that Solomon Lane wrote that manifesto, I would have instantly been like, well, yeah. I mean, Rogue Nation sort of confirmed it. Because that's part of what the syndicate's all about. And now we find out that Solomon's really following Walker. It just doesn't, I don't buy it because. It, well, it's interesting because he says, you had me write this. So it's almost like Solomon Lane said, I need you to write me a manifesto. And then Walker just comes up with the words. And it's like, it's like an author being given assignment. It's like me telling you, Patrick, here, I want you to direct this movie about, you know, soccer or, you know, mm-hmm. people playing soccer on the moon. Like you have no investment, no care in the world. You just do it because you're talented and you can make up something that people will somewhat believe. And that's kind of what I felt like Walker did for Lane. He just, he came up with these lines, but he never really bought them. He never really believed them. And well, that's, that's consistent with his character. That's better. Yeah. I think that's better. And that does make more sense film from the film perspective. And, and as an ideal, I think it's very true. And I think that's scary. But when do we see the world come together the most? It's in moments of tragedy. Now, it's typically fleeting these days in our times. You know, we change our profile icons to rainbow colored or, um, you know, put a France icon on it or whatever the case may be to show support for a tragedy that, that has occurred, the victims of that. But we seem to be at our most connected with each other and the people around us that are outside of our individual bubbles when things are going poorly. Yeah. And in the context of mission impossible, I never felt like the world was coming together or that the, even, even if we hear Hunley say the world is at risk, I don't really believe that. I believe that certain parts of the world are at risk based on where the IMF team is. And that's never been something that I could take seriously in this franchise in terms of saying, Oh gosh, the world's going to explode because Ethan and his team didn't make it to France in time to 
stop that bomb. No, it's always been localized. And when you have a, a manifesto like that or a line like that, that sounds very global, it, found, it, it, it invites the sense of we should all come together. I don't know that you've given me enough in the movie independently to make that argument to say, Oh gosh, this is going to, this is going to do something incredible. Um, I, I did like the fact that they put the location of the bombs where they did. And I like how it tied back in to Ethan and his relationship with his wife and, and seeing how Solomon Lane, I think is doing two things, but one more than the other one, he is following this manifesto and two, he's getting revenge. Like he wants, he wants Ethan to suffer. But that's his that's his end game. He right. wants Ethan to suffer more than anything else. And the manifesto, I think, is a byproduct of that. Um, I also would say that I really enjoyed that. And that was part of why when that wool was pulled away from the eyes and we realized that was all fake and that didn't happen. It was a cool little aha moment for me. But a big part of me really wanted that to be where this series went. I wanted to see what happens when... The villain has actually won for once. The villain has exploded bombs into major holy cities and millions are dead. And another one is about to happen. Now, what do you do? You've lost, but you still have an opportunity to sort of win, like to, to save others from a similar fate that you no longer think could happen. Like, you know, for a fact that it will happen because it has happened. Like that story to me would have been incredible to tell. And it would have been unlike anything we've actually seen in this genre because we always stop the bad guy. And even if they stopped him before the third bomb gone, going off, like the world being actually changed because they made the choice that Ethan made, like, man, I, I just, I couldn't help but like the whole film think in the back of my head, gosh, I wanted to see that movie. For sure. I, as much as I would probably want to agree with you, I think you would lose the essence of what the franchise is. And at the end of it all, you're expecting Ethan and his team to win maybe some casualties here and there. But if that didn't happen, you'd, you'd essentially just change the weight of the movie franchise as a whole. It would change everything. That's true. Maybe that's what fallout should have been. It's fallout. It's like, no more, what would happen? no more jokes. Right. It would become, it would become drama all over. And I think that that would, that would feel lost to me. That's fair. That's fair. So I guess I'll say this. I do know, not upset that this movie didn't do that, but it made me wish that we ever would get a movie that does like show me a movie that goes that serious uh, or a series and make another one, you know, make another spy flick series that, that goes that route because mission possible mission possible. <laughs> but we missed anything that you wanted to touch on before we get to our rankings. No, I think, I think we've pretty much got it there. All right. Well, I waver on these and uh, I'm going to commit. So at least those of you who are listening are going to hear me commit. I have a lot of ties in this series because it's hard. It's, it's a cheat. So it's such a cheat, though. It's, it's so hard. But so I'm gonna I'm gonna do do it the right way, okay? So for me, and I'm gonna count up from the bottom. The worst one, Mission Impossible Two. I know that the, it has its fans out there. They're very few and far between. Um, again, contributor Don Shanahan of every movie has a lesson. If you guys want to go seek somebody out that loves Mission Impossible Two, that's your guy. He will defend it 
uh, like the rest of us. But, uh, I, you know, it's fine. And, and I don't hate it. I enjoy it for the most part. It's just by far my least favorite of the series. After it, I have to say this one is going to be my fifth favorite in the series. Um, it was tied kind of in a ranking area there with Mission Impossible 3, but this most recent viewing of Mission Impossible 3 for me pushed it up so much because of the emotional storyline that's being... It's very... It's not just personal and emotional, but it is very streamlined, which is this one has some of that too, but it's not streamlined. It's got so much else going on as well. So I like Mission Impossible 3 a little more. So if I'm in the back, two, six, three, then I'm going to go with four and five are so, so tied together. There's like only a little bit of each one that I don't like. I got to say Rogue Nation is after this as far as toward the back and then Ghost protocol and then my favorite in the series is mission impossible one so i know you didn't follow that at all listeners because it was completely confusing so here's my rankings mission impossible one is my favorite i love brian de palma's gritty take on the series i think that it is the most spy genre like traditionally and i think it gives us those iconic moments it starts everything and i just think it's a perfect film really uh second for me is ghost protocol right behind that Rogue Nation, right behind that. Mission Impossible 3, right behind that. Fallout, and then dot, 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 dot. Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> That's a great ranking. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. That's funny. <laughs> well, all right. So we definitely agree on our least favorite. Number two is is leading the pack there for, for least favorite. Not because it's bad, but because it just feels different. Like a, There's a lot of there's just so much about it that doesn't feel cohesive, tonally, um, cinematically, all these things that just, it feels like a different action movie altogether. If you named it something else, then I would be okay with that. Like Ethan Hunt goes AWOL or something, or Ethan Hunt gets a really long hairstyle. I don't know. Um, so yeah, so two is two is right there. I... So, and when I say this, my next lowest is a distant, like closer to the top. Um, I'm putting, I'm putting Ghost Protocol here, only because there were a lot of things about the rest of these movies that stood out to me in a surprising way that made me go, "Oh my gosh, this is wow! This is better than I expected." Um, so when I watched Ghost Protocol, it was exactly what I expected the most recent time around, and in some ways, a little bit less wow for me there's a lot going on and it's you're you're exactly right there's a lot about it and rogue nation that are pretty much neck and neck in terms of just the the wow factor the action set pieces uh the camaraderie the dialogue everything is great but i put it here as a distant (laughs) second to last place and then mission impossible 3 comes in at my my third worst or my fourth best. I don't know how you would describe that. And this was actually the big surprise for me. I didn't think I would like this when I watched it, but as convoluted as the plot is and only near the end, like there's a, there's a moment near the end of the movie where I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't need to do all that. You could have just gotten me from here to here and I would have been fine with that. So mission impossible three comes in at, uh, at fourth 
Fallout comes in at third. There was a lot to like about it. Henry Cavill, I think, made the jump from fourth to third for me. I was kind of wavering between this and three. Um, the very first one is my number two. I think that it sets the tone. I think that's what we got back to with Fallout. And then finally, Rogue Nation comes in at number one. And this is a distant number one from everything else. Like there's Rogue Nation, and then there's like three or four Fast and the Furious movies, and then there's Mission Impossible. There's so much about Rogue Nation that I absolutely just loved. The fact that we got five for five, six for six scenes in a row where we're just like, this is fantastic. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that choreography? We got Rebecca Ferguson doing some crazy great choreography. We got her introduction. We got her character fleshed out. And my wife reminded me that this is the songbird from The Greatest Showman. I didn't even make that connection. And I was like, wow, this is someone who can sing and kick some booty. That's enough for me to have a great heroine there. So um, for me, Road Nation stands above and beyond any of these other ones, followed by Mission Impossible, Fallout, Mission Impossible 3, um, Rogue Nation, I mean, Ghost Protocol, I always get those two mixed up, and then Mission Impossible 2. I saw somebody online say that they wanted the movie where Ilsa Faust is uh, under deep cover as Jenny Lind. Dude, I would, <laughs> I would totally back that. I would totally, see that. Right? I would totally Absolutely. back that. They're the same character. <laughs> That's good stuff, man. Well, let's get to our connecting points. Um, This is always the fun part of the show where we pick the one scene that we most related to or were most emotionally impacted by. Do you want to take this one first? Sure, I'll start. And I know a lot of times we try to be a little bit above reproach when it comes to our connecting points. We try to find stuff that's not so obvious um, if they're packing an emotional punch. But for me, the ending of the movie is really where I felt the most emotionally connected. And it's that moment with Ethan's final moment with Julia, where he's laying down and she's talking to him. And um, in that moment, I saw an exclamation point of several things that make this franchise so enjoyable for me. One, it brings closure to Ethan and Julia's relationship something that I think was handled really as best as it could, given that we have a series that's being directed by multiple directors and multiple storylines. And as I mentioned before, the strength of this, the strength of this franchise is that you can watch a movie independent and not necessarily have to have backstory. These back three or four have this thread of Ethan's relationship with her. And I thought that it landed really well. I think it landed as well as it could because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, where is she? What's she going to do? How are they going to work this out? And I was really surprised when I found out, when we find out she's married. Like, what? Oh my gosh. How are they going to handle that? Are they going to kill her off or what's going to happen? And secondly, it's this conversation. We get the essence of who Ethan Hunt is as a character. Um, we see his value system of wanting to make sure that the people in his life are taken care of, whether it's her, whether it's Benji, whether it's the rest of his team. And finally, it reminds us that a film franchise like this, much like The Fast and the Furious, I keep kind of pimping that, um, it doesn't just have to be a series of action set, piece, action set pieces with these MacGuffins to chase. And that's a lot of fun. This is what summer popcorn movies should be about. It should be about having a great time in the theater. But it can also have heart. It can also have emotion. It can also have some good drama. And when that's, when that's used appropriately, which I feel like Fallout does a pretty decent job of, it's this moment with 
Ethan and Julia that I think really stands out because it feels sincere. It feels like we're drawing the curtain on their relationship. We're seeing a kind of a blossoming potentially of his relationship with Ilsa, whether it's professional or otherwise, we see a moving on. And I think for any of us who were invested in that relationship, either from an outside point of view, or maybe we were wondering the whole time between three and this, what was going to happen. I think it's great closure. And I think it helps us kind of move on and not have to wonder anymore because her life is her life and she loves her life, but she loves it because she knows Ethan has been taking care of her and protecting her, that he's out there. That's the reason why she can enjoy her life. So it was a great moment and I loved it. He's a dark knight. Anyway, he is. He is. Um, <laughs> he's Batman. I uh, think that there's something really amazing about the way that this ends with her. And I think that it's because Solomon Lane as a villain pulls the almost Philip Seymour Hoffman esque trick off of bringing Julia into the mix intentionally in order to make it hurt more for Ethan. And the brilliance here is that in doing so, because of who Ethan is, you essentially have given him a superpower. You have made him more determined and you have made it less likely that your plan will succeed because of that, because now he does care more because he wants to save that one life more than the millions. Uh, and I love, love how it works out like that. I think that was really well done to bring her in and the way that they wrapped her storyline up. So that's a great one, man. Uh, definitely worthy. Mine, despite the criticism, and, th and that's how much I love this moment, despite the criticism that I lobbied a little bit earlier with the Benji mask switch, the entire tunnel switcheroo scene for me was just the epitome of this team in action with the way that this series has gone and everything kind of working together. It had all the parts. So it's lighter in action. It does get some action. And I kind of draw my connecting point of this scene out a little bit. So it's everything that happens in that tunnel. And so I get all of these different pieces. It's got Benji assuming the role of Lane and getting to wear that mask. Finally, I, I don't, I didn't care ultimately that it was a fake thing because it was such a big deal to him. Like, when you've got a character who wants to do some little thing like just be a part of the team by wearing a mask over and over and over, mentioning it every movie, he finally gets to do it, and it's such an important time. I love that. And he's really good at it. We learn that he's a great actor, at it and he sells it. Then we find out that director Hunley is in on it too, which was an awesome reveal and shocking. Was not expecting that. I totally bought that he was about to just give up on Ethan because that's what the other directors would have done at this point. And so that's the way it's a great switch for us. And then the moment we realize that it's Benji and not Solomon Lane is so great because we get this humor. We get Benji saying it's just the job to Walker. Fantastic line. And then we get Hunley saying to them, Oh, you were doing so well up until then. It's like this amazing turn of events. Right. And the way that Henry Cavill plays this as Walker is wonderful as well because he's genuinely shocked. He is genuinely surprised for a moment. But then we also get this fantastic shootout in the tunnel where this crazy stuff is going on and it takes a total team effort to pull off this double cross and to get out of this situation. And yet we also still get the tragedy 
in this moment of Hunley's death, which was way more impactful on me than I ever would have thought it would be. It's played perfectly in my opinion. It's not overdone. He doesn't have the kind of last breath, last words, fakey kind of last thing that everybody does. Like he says his piece, he's trying to, but then he just dies. And it just took me through so many emotions uh, this this one section of the film that it's the most memorable part of Fallout for me. So when I think about this movie, most people may think about that helicopter sequence or they may think about that halo jump. Maybe even we think about something smaller like Ethan and Julia. But for me, it's going to be this sequence. And it's largely because of the team dynamic in play and what's going on there. Because to me, just like Fast and Furious, and you've said it several times, Fast and Furious is about family Mission Impossible is about the team, and this nailed it perfectly in one room. So, I'm glad that you chose this because one of the big criticisms that I had, and I'm not going to harp on this, was just the length of the of the action sequences. And that goes back to my one word takeaway: is the the franticness of it. I think was contributed by the length of some of these scenes. I think they could have all, with the exception of this one been trimmed by two or three minutes. We'd go back and forth, back and forth. And at some point I'm like, okay, okay, that's enough. Okay, let's move on now. The tunnel sequence though felt perfectly paced. It felt perfectly timed. It didn't feel like it lingered. It's particularly the moment with Hunley. And it really felt the tightest of most of the, the big action pieces. And that's hard to do. I mean, I'm not criticizing any of the cinematography or the choreography. For me personally, it was just too long in a lot of ways. But I know how I can imagine how difficult that is to choreograph a sequence to get your point across and not leave your audience going, okay, let's move on. For a lot of people, that might have been just fine. I mean, and that's okay too. But um, I particularly found this sequence very beautifully done with all those things that you mentioned. Yeah. It's the culmination of McQuarrie's great directing for me. Agreed. Like everything right here is, and, and it reminds me a lot of the payoff in rogue nation, which is what I really remember, even though the opera scene stands out and some of the other cool action moments scenes stand out that aspect of them sealing him off in a box to get him back just the same way that he initially gets Ethan and the way, and that's when I bought into Sean Harris as a, an actor right there too. The way that he is just, you can't believe that he's been beaten and he's just shooting the glass and glaring at Ethan as he, you know, passes out and the team all standing him around him and the camera swerving, you know, catching all of them. And there's great little quips and stuff made. And it's like, that's this scene only a little better. And like, so it's McQuarrie's best scene to me, but anyway, all right. Well, this has been a blast. A good time as always. Patrick, I'm glad we liked this. I'm glad it paid off and that uh, it lived up to expectations or at least to be great. We knew it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. this There will be no fallout from from this movie. With <laughs> to our love for Mission Impossible. Absolutely not. We're still in on the series. Please. So um, where can people find you on social media if they want to talk to you further? Look for me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E, 
L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can find me hanging out with both in both of those places. If you feel so inclined, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to us. We're always uh, grateful for any kind of feedback, positive or positive. Um, leave us a five-star review or better. Ha, ha, ha. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, just let us know what you think. We hope you are enjoying what you're hearing. And any additional reviews that we get are always good for our uh, our hearts there. As you mentioned before, Aaron, in the beginning of the episode, we have got the Director Battle Month happening right now. And next week, I'm excited to just repeat the fact that we're going to be catching Gladiator, one of my favorite Ridley Scott films. Um, this is one that I've been looking for a reason to cover. And I'm so glad that this uh, this battle has taken place because uh, the people have spoken and Gladiator will be happening. And um, so be sure to tune in for that. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I think it's going to be a good one. And it'll be fun to reveal our picks as well. So for those of you who will be tuning in next week, Patrick and I went ahead and secretly made our own predictions of what our Facebook group was going to vote. So we will reveal those and see which one of us knows the group better. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I did pretty well. That's all I said. Okay. Uh, but we will find out next week on the Feel and Film podcast. If you'd like to continue to chat with me somewhere online, you can do that at Feel and Film Aaron on Twitter or through the Twitter account of the show at Feel and Film. And you can also find me and Patrick in our Facebook group that we talk about all the time. And we would love to have you come be a member of that. Patrons, we do owe you a July bonus episode and some bonus coverage. It is coming. We promise. It's been a rough last couple of weeks of July for us with some travel involved. But Edge of Tomorrow is on the docket. It's another Tom Cruise flick. It kind of synergized perfectly. And then we're also going to give you our top five Tom Cruise performances for bonus content for those of you who are patrons. So if you want to be involved in that, check out patreon.com slash feeling film here at the first of the month, we're going to start a new set of voting for our August donor pick episode. Uh, so if you want to be part of that, you can come throw us a dollar and be a part of the voting, throw us $2 a month and you can get the bonus content that we do and all of the back bonus content that we have. As always, thank you though so much for listening. Stay positive and keep feeling film.